Kendra decided she was going to do an experiment. It had been a couple of weeks. I'd been getting some strange stomach aches, and we didn't know why. And then one day we got an email from a Homesteady fan who said, Hey, Aust, loved your recent abducted podcast. If you haven't heard the abducted podcast, that's the term we use to describe the crazy people who decide to bring ducks into their life. They said, I am abducted, but I've learned since becoming abducted that I'm allergic to duck eggs. They give me wicked stomach aches, and they told us the process and how they figured this out. Well, here I was having these crazy stomach aches, and we had no idea why. And at the same time, we were enjoying farm fresh duck eggs every morning. So one morning, we were getting ready to go out as a family and spend the day out. We were all, it takes a lot of work to get two adults and a bunch of whole mess of children ready to go. We'd all gone out. Kate prepared breakfast, and without telling me, she made duck eggs. We already had the suspicion that they might be the culprit, uh, but she decided to try it out without me knowing. For science, you need to have a blind study, a blind uh, test, and this was our blind, uh, without me knowing, eating duck eggs. And sure enough, about an hour and a half into our day, out and about with the family, On came the stomach ache. Her hypothesis was confirmed and my stomach was very angry. I'm allergic to duck eggs. And since finding this out, we have shrunk our duck herd flock, that's the word, We have shrunk the duck flock to just two. We have two figureheads, Don Draker and Betty Draker. As you know, if you're abducted, you have to have cheesy duck names for your ducks. That's one of the three main criteria. Uh, The individual we're gonna talk to tonight shares this similar problem, and yet he hasn't gotten rid of the ducks. If anything, he's gotten more. We're going to welcome Morgan Gold onto the Homesteady Show tonight. Morgan from the Goldshaw Farm, and perhaps you've seen Morgan's YouTube channel. He has a whole mess of ducks and a whole bunch of other stuff in his farm in Vermont. And we're going to talk ducks, allergies, leaving the corporate life to start a farm, and a whole bunch of other stuff. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. 
Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. So Morgan, I have to ask you, because I remember that day very well, like it was yesterday. What was it like the day you realized you were allergic to duck eggs? Well, it, it was much like what you just described, where it wasn't like an immediate, like, oh, I know it right away. It was, I, I we had our first ducks laying eggs and, and like, it was like day two or day three of getting eggs. And, you know, you're so excited. Like you've had these birds for several months, you've been waiting for them to produce something and they haven't done anything yet. And then finally, like you get that first egg and you're so excited, you fry it up, you eat it plain, you're so excited, it's great. But then what would happen is it was like I got food poisoning later that day. <laughs> and I didn't know what it was, but I didn't chalk it up to the egg. I was like, well, maybe I must have had something bad the night before or, you know, I had some sausage with it. Maybe that was bad or like, you know, I had eaten something wrong. Then, you know, two or three days later, you do it again and you get food poisoning again. You start to get this sinking suspicion. And then exactly what you described, where it's like you kind of have a hunch, but, you know, something in the back of your mind is telling you, please don't let it be this. Please don't let it be this. <laughs> please don't let and it be it, the thing I've dedicated my life to, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, you know, my whole farm business plan is all around owning a whole bunch of ducks here. This, this is like I'm banking on it let me eat the stuff I'm raising. And so I waited until a day where I didn't have to go into work and I knew like I could be incapacitated if so, such was the case. And I, I didn't have anything the night before I skipped dinner. So I was like completely fasted. I had breakfast that morning. It was two fried duck eggs, nothing on it. And just, you know, a little olive oil to fry it in. And that was it. And I got sick again. And I was like, all right, that's the case. And, and so, yeah, I'm allergic to duck eggs. That's the exact way we figured out. We never went and did any testing and we never went to any doctors. It's pretty easy to figure out after three or four times of having food poisoning. It essentially is food poisoning. You were poisoned by the food that you worked so hard to raise and produce on your homestead. sad feeling i know like oh man what a bad day but probably sadder because morgan you you tell us a bit about your farm here you're really invested in ducks uh, sure so i mean we're we're primarily a duck and goose farm um we raise ducks for uh you know basically selling hatchlings as well as meat and eggs and 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 actually hatching eggs as well and and so that's a core part of our business plan for the farm and and so to you know, not be able to eat at least a portion of what you're producing is frustrating. And even with the geese, I, I actually just started to have geese start laying eggs right now. And I'm not sure if I can oh, do it no. or not, but I, <laughs> I, I haven't tempted fate just yet on that one. 
Um, but yeah, yeah we're, we're a duck and goose farm. That's that's mostly what we do. Waterfowl. Those of you who are joining us live, uh, make sure to let me know in the chat box that you can hear me, that you can hear Morgan, that it all looks good, that it all sounds good. Uh, we have a really nice show planned. Morgan has done something that's really incredible. He left the comfortable corporate life. Uh, he had a good job, a successful job, uh, one that you know when you're leaving school you, you hope to get. And he left it all to start a farm up in Vermont. Uh, he left city life. For those of you who are thinking about doing this, we're going to talk a lot about that. Uh, so just let us know if you can hear me, if you can see me, and get your questions in early because as I always say, there's a bit of a delay. And at the end of the show, we might shut it down, not getting your question in time. So get the questions in the chat box for Morgan. Well, you know, I never wanted to be in marketing in the first place. So I think that that's a big part of it. I, uh, when I went to school, I, I went to art school. I was like a, an animation major in college. No way. Cool. But when I, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I got out of school, it was, uh, you know, right after the dot-com bust and, you know, jobs were hard to come by. And I ended up, you know, finding my place at an at advertising agency and working there for a little bit. And then that agency went out of business and, I got a job at an insurance company and that job at an insurance company ultimately led to a job at an investment company and all of it doing marketing, taking, you know, the storytelling skills and some of the basics of, of design principles that I learned and, and developed as an animator, but applying it to strategy and how you talk about stuff. But, you know, I, I would get up every morning. I would uh, go to the gym to get physical exercise because I would spend the rest of my day in an office in uh, actually downtown Bethesda, Maryland. Um, I drive back home and, and live inside a, you know, a row house, which, you know, had a post stamp of a lawn where at the time I was trying to grow as many vegetables as I could in my front yard, but you know, even still it's, it's only yay big. And, you know, you're getting all your meals and takeout. You are just going out to the bar to meet with friends and do stuff like that. You're, you know, going to catch a hockey game if you want, you know, kind of living all the city convenience life. Um, but it's it's also very sort of sterile and alone. And, and, it, and one of the things that I always found with, with living in cities, right, is you're surrounded by people, but you become very socially isolated because you're surrounded by so many people. And, and, and so, you know, it wasn't like easy to make friends in Washington, D.C. as an adult in your 30s. And uh yeah, it was it was it was tough. It was it was one of those things where my wife and I were really finding ourselves increasingly unhappy living that sort of city life. The more and more I, I got into that life and doing that work, the more and more I realized I just don't like it. Um, you know, I was I was just finding I was just going from meeting to meeting and, and doing work that ultimately I didn't feel like mattered. And, and so it was, it was a certain point about, I don't know, I guess it was about six years ago now, um, where I just realized that this isn't how I want to spend the rest of my life. I mean, I'm, you know, I was mid thirties at the time and, you know, really thinking about, well, where do I want to go long-term? And the other thing that I'd sort of simultaneously gotten really passionate about is thinking about the food system that we have in America and thinking about some of the challenges that we have in getting good nutritious food to people getting it produced in a sustainable way and getting it to people uh, across the country at all sorts of economic levels. And sort of all three of those things were really important to me. And, and 
that led me down this research rabbit hole of studying sustainable farming, studying permaculture, you know, finding homesteaders and folks like you and, you know, learning about kind of how there's just a whole different way to live. And that's where my wife and I started to hatch this plan where we were going to escape our lives in Washington, D.C. and move up to this farm here in Vermont. That's funny. I, I feel like the more people you talk to who either live in like city life or who work in places with lots and lots of people, that there's nothing more lonely feeling than being surrounded by people and not really connecting with any of them. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Absolutely. It, it's, it's, it's a weird phenomenon. And, and I think, you know, actually social media would be another example of what I'll point yeah, to. Yeah, that's it's a like, good one. You know, you're in constant contact with thousands of people, whether it's through Facebook or Instagram or, or whatever, Twitter. And yet at the same time, you're not having connections that are meaning and, and meaningful and substantial or in a lot of those cases. And, and that becomes really challenging. And just those surface and transactional connections and just seeing that so-and-so is doing this or so-and-so is doing that, or, you know, having a quick drink with this person or that person doesn't create that sense of community. And it really takes, whether it's, it's finding a shared like interest, like homesteading, like I think the community that you've been building with homesteading, I think is a good example of it in a virtual sense. Or if I think about my, my community and friends and family or friends and neighbors that I have here in Peachman, Vermont, like that's another type of community where you have this shared deeper, more fundamental connection, which ultimately becomes a lot more meaningful too. So how did you make the jump, Morgan? How did you go from this corporate life, you know, what a lot of people would consider a successful position uh, to have reached? How did you make that leap to leaving that all behind and going up north to Vermont? Well, it, it, it took a lot of planning and it was a transition that took us a couple of years. So, you know, first off, we, we decided we needed to find the place that we wanted to end up and ultimately try to create that home base. And, and so it started with kind of a search of where we wanted to live. Uh, both my wife and I grew up in, in Southern New England and Connecticut. And, and so we wanted to live in New England because we felt like just sort of DC and, and it was just too far South and too hot of a climate for us and not exactly the scene that we wanted um, wasn't right. And so we wanted to be in New England, but we also didn't want to be right in Connecticut where land costs are really high and you're telling you know, me overall cost of living is tough i mean yeah you used you're a connecticut escapee <laughs> and and um and so that got us thinking about places like vermont where you know it was relatively affordable to be up here um we're in the northeast kingdom which is like the northeastern portion of the state so it's relatively sparsely populated land prices are a lot cheaper but then also at the same time a lot of the people in this area were sort of like-minded with us and and so that was attractive to us. And so we found that place first. And then from there, we started to, you know, we found this abandoned farm. It's a old farmhouse that was built in the 1830s. Um, we worked on rehabbing the house and kind of going back and forth from DC to here, working on the house, trying to get that situated. 
then, you know, we had to figure out jobs because, you know, we're, we didn't have like the money saved up to just be like, all right, we're retired now at this point. And, and so my wife actually went back to school. She was a nurse and decided she wanted to be a nurse practitioner. And, and luckily, uh, rural medicine is one of those real big gaps. And, and there's just not enough people to provide care for people in this area. And so it was matching a real passion of hers with a need in the community. And then I also just started working and, and looking for ways that I could leverage some of my skills from past jobs in a day job and ultimately found uh, some connections that, that would work out. And so my wife moved up here first because she actually had to start school up here and, and she wanted to, you know, start getting ready to practice medicine up here. And then I followed about seven months later where we had this transition where we sold our house in DC, you know, moved everything up here. I stayed in like a little tiny squat apartment for a bit to, to finish out my, my last job and then ultimately made the leap. And it was May of 2018 when we finally moved up here full time, both of us, and started working and actually then also started the process of starting the farm. about 160 acres here, you know, in terms of land and space, we got way more than we need. It's about currently about 50 acres ish or so of pasture, uh, with the remainder being a mix mixture of softwoods and hardwood forest. As far as thinking about the land in the business plan, you know, this used to be an old dairy farm. We have this gigantic ancient barn, it's three stories, it's about 12,000 square feet in total floor space. Um, that you know, it's just completely impractical for doing things like raising poultry, uh, but it's also been falling apart. And so when we first started with the farm, I wasn't sure if we were going to keep it or not even um, because it, it's just it is just a big extra cost that sort of hangs over you. But ultimately, the, the most important thing, though, that I wanted to do was get started with planting trees. I knew that regardless of what we were going to do, what animals we were going to ultimately raise and where our, our farm businesses were going to go, I knew that having perennial tree crops was going to be an important part of it. Um, you know, it's funny, I actually just uh, past couple of weeks, I was I was in uh, Spain uh, working on some stuff and uh, meeting some folks and doing a little research, actually, and looking at the Spanish dehesa, which is this system that they have of grazing pigs on acorns throughout these ancient oak forests. And, and when you see that, that was ultimately the vision I had had for our farm. And, and so that's why I said, you know, first and foremost, I want trees. And then whether I'm bringing in sheep or goats or cattle or pigs or poultry, I want to add those things on. And so I got started with planting about 600 trees. Uh, it was a mixture of chestnuts, hazelnuts, elderberry, mulberry, uh, black locust for timber, uh, butternut um, and, and so we had that scattered throughout the back forest because I knew that was going to take a decade just to develop that first and foremost so that was step one so then the next thing that we did was ducks and and really you know back to what I was saying earlier it was thinking about well probably should start with poultry because that is got less startup costs um, 
you know, less, you know, again, I'm a newbie farmer, so I had never really had my own livestock. I, you know, raised like cats and dogs when I was a kid. And that was about my experience with animals. Um, and, and, and so I started with, I knew I wanted to do poultry, but when I was thinking about it from a business perspective, I also realized that everybody in this area has backyard chickens. And on top of it all, if you wanted to buy a carton of, of a dozen eggs from one of those backyard chicken flocks, you're talking like two or three bucks a dozen. And that's a really, real low price point and a really hard thing to actually make profitable. But meanwhile, duck eggs are relatively scarce around here. Have you and, been and talking to accountant Mike? You sound like you're pretty switched <laughs> on there, Morgan. You know, he, you know, he is a very smart man, as I've heard of many times <laughs> on your podcast. So, so yeah, it, it's really trying to have a strategy. I mean, it was the same thing with what tree crops I picked too. But really pick things that people aren't doing in your area so that you can fulfill a niche and you can actually have a potential market for it. You have this challenge of having to educate people and, and sometimes get people past this. Well, I'm not sure. I've never had a duck egg before. Um, but but if you can do that, it actually creates a good market for you. That is you just did like a mini masterclass. How many years were you working in marketing, Morgan? Uh, yeah, it was probably about 10, 15 years in you, marketing. Just like a yeah. mini masterclass right there on like marketing 101. We all want to run off and do this farm dream thing. But I love what you said. Everybody and their brothers got chickens in the backyard. When you move to the country, everybody's got chickens. So if you go into chickens, my son's going to give me the thumbs down for this. I'm discouraging chickens. There it is. I knew it was. I got to get a thumbs down cam on him. He's as bad as accountant Mike is. Um, if you go into the market and you say like, well, I'm going to do chickens and I'll do them cheaper or I'll do them better. You're going to be fighting and it's probably not going to pay out unless you're like a cute little guy like my son when he started. Now he's like a manly little, manly guy, but he started off cute and little. I'll often give people, especially in the area here, free duck eggs to get them hooked. And then once they get into it and they see, oh, wow, this does help me uh, bake something better or these are these are tasty and they make a great omelet. Um, that that's what keeps them coming back. And, and so not being so afraid of giving away a sample version of like, hey, let me cut this egg carton in half and give you a half dozen so you can see what it's like. Um, that has helped a lot too, especially in this area where, you know, it's, you know, relatively less affluent than say a market like Boston or Montreal for us in our area. And, and so that's, that's been a big part of it as well. Morgan's like a duck push a man over here. Hey, <laughs> exactly. Just got to get him hooked, man. <laughs> <laughs> so you found a good market. You had a good idea. You were also still reasonable. So how did you get started with the ducks? How many did you bring in and like, how'd you build it? I raised khaki Campbell ducks, primarily the breed khaki Campbell. So they're, they're very great uh, egg layers. They probably produce about 300 eggs a year for each hen that you have. Um, and what I did was I would get straight runs of those because you can get them relatively cheap from a lot of the hatcheries. And I would cull most of the males in the fall and I would uh, keep a lot of the females and then just, you know, keep adding to the flock and, and growing it that way. My first year was I did uh, 40 ducks. Um, and, and basically my plan was always to try to rotationally graze them out in our pasture and ultimately try to graze them around our trees in our, our permaculture orchard that we have planted. Because one of the great things that ducks are, are good for is 
keeping away your insects and keeping away some of your weeds. And, and so um, I got a, you know, a brooder system set up to brood those ducks for the first few weeks of their life. And then from there, I actually built a good old John Siskovich chicken tractor. And I would house the ducks in the chicken tractor and I would move the tractor every day. And I also had some Premier One uh, uh, poultry netting that I'd surround it with. And so rather than keep them in the tractor full time, what I would do is let them kind of go around inside the poultry netting during the day and then um, lock them up in the tractor at night for security. And, and I would move the uh, tractor every single day and I'd move the fencing line every single week. And so it became pretty easy from a, a work standpoint to have that system in place because it, you know, it was like half hour in the morning, half hour in the afternoon, just making sure I had water out to them and food and you know, moving the tractor. And it was, it was really relatively low stress. And then by the time the fall rolled around, I had full grown ducks and I could separate my drakes from my hens. And I kept a couple of drakes just for future generations, but then took the rest of them, butchered them and ultimately sold most of them, which the selling of those drakes actually made the whole enterprise break even in that first year. Wow, that's um, Just because, you know, when you look at like the relatively low amount of cost I had in infrastructure to begin with, that helped. But then, you know, you have this premium meat product that you can sell too that people weren't finding, oh, wow, farm-raised duck that's raised locally here, that was also a rarity. And so that helped in terms of keeping it going. And then everything I started to do once the ducks started laying and selling there became just an easy thing to recoup the cost on because all I was having to do at that point was keep pace with my feed costs. Morgan, man, you, you're a good businessman. You've taught like so many things you've said. I want to like dive into, we could have like a <laughs> podcast here. Um, there were two things there you talked about. First off the getting into a enterprise where you come in lean. One of the best things about a Johnny, my buddy, Johnny, his chicken tractors is they are lean as far as they're, they're great performing product. They work really well, but they are low cost compared to like a coop. So you can spend 200. I think Johnny says he spends about 250 bucks to put together his chicken tractors versus you buy, if you buy a pre-made coop or a shed, you can just spend 400 to a thousand dollars. Now they're, there are pros and cons to the coop versus the tractors, especially seasonally. But if you're doing something where you're raising ducks who are going to get covered up and down, did you, Morgan, did you winter them in the tractor too, or did you have a place to winter them? So, so I actually built a more permanent setup for the winter because we get so much snow up here. You know, we get uh, like last year, for example, we had about four feet of snow on the pasture for most of the, the season. So like it's really tough to winter them in the, the chicken tractor. But actually this year I had inside our barn, I, I've got a couple of my old old Scovich tractors stored right now. And I keep my, my geese actually inside those. So it's like a structure that I can keep secure from predators. Um, and then I let them out in the barn so they have a little more space during the day. Nice. But so I am using them in the winter. And, and that's kind of what I like about them so much. Cause you're right, I think, I found it cost me about, yeah, about 275 to build each tractor. And it's really flexible because I can use it to raise geese. I can use it to raise ducks. I can use it to raise chickens. Um, I could probably house other animals in it if I wanted to. I, I've also found, you know, they're not that hard to build. Like I'm a guy who even as recently as like four or five years ago was like paying people to build my Ikea furniture. For me, right? <laughs> oh man. <Morgan. laughs> and you so and I had like no alike, skills, man. Yeah, I, I know like skills I know whatsoever. 
but you know, you're just following along in, in John's manual there and you yeah. put it together pretty quick and you find you just get some skills along the way, which is I think another fringe benefit of it all. So for those of you watching, if you if you're getting sold on a Siscovich tractor, don't forget if you're a pioneer, we have a discount to Johnny's book in the discount section. So go ahead and check that out. Uh, I really I've never built one of Johnny's tractors. I've seen him a million times because we were buddies and we I'd always go visit and I knew they were I built one. I built the Homesteady Chicken Tractor, and my wife always was like, "Why don't? Can't you make me one of John's? They are so much better." <laughs> she wanted John's tractor. So one of these days, I'm going to do one. We got the big field out here, and I thought, man, that'd be pretty perfect. I could drag a couple across that field and actually put them to work. You uh, you mentioned Morgan that now you're housing geese. How did you go from the ducks to adding in geese? Why? So sure. So. I really love ducks as animals. They're, they're, you know, they got a ton of personality, you know, their, their eggs are great. The meat is great. I, I just think they're great animals to work with. They're very easy to manage. But the one thing I don't like about ducks is that they're not that sustainable. You know, even if I'm in the peak of summer, and they're getting a lot of insects from the pasture and eating plants from the pasture, there's still a fair amount of feed that I'm trucking onto the farm and, and providing to them. So it's feed that's grown far away from us here. I'm having to go pick it up and drive it over here. From a carbon footprint and sustainability perspective, it's not great. Geese, on the other hand, Once I get past about week four or five, I can have them getting about 90 to 95% of their diet from grass. No And way. here at our farm, we have just a massive supply of grass where there's no shortage there. And so I started last year raising geese in a essentially a, a rotational grazing system, much like you do sheep or cattle. And it worked out awesome. And, and so I'm actually like tripling down on it for, for 2020 when I'm going into it. When you look forward now, right? So you've you've got your ducks, you've got your geese. What is your next three years? You we already talked about a little ways. You're looking into the prosciutto and making some changes. Uh, being allergic to the duck aids is this affecting you going forward? What's your plans for moving Goldshaw Farm forward? Sure. So so it's funny. I, I just uh, I took like the first vacation that my wife and I went on in like five years uh, last week, and, and we went out to Spain and. Um, I was really there though, like covertly also taking lots of notes, <laughs> looking at how they raise uh, the pigs that they use to create Hamon and Berico, which is the special pork raised on acorns. And it's got me thinking about how do I apply a system like that to what we're doing here? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And so ultimately in the next three years, my goal is to add two more animals into the mix. Probably one being pigs and potentially the other being cattle, just because we're so well suited for it, given the grasslands that we have here. And, and really trying to build out our silvo pasture, so the combination of trees and grassland, and have multiple types of animals 
including focusing on the ducks, the geese, and you know, like I said, pigs, and like I said, probably cattle, maybe sheep. I, I'm I'm hundred, I'm not hundred percent on that part of it yet, but but that creating this system of multi-species working the land and taking advantage of the perennial tree crops that we have planted. Um, that's, that's my long-term vision. And so that's what I'm ultimately working towards with the farm itself. Now, Morgan, you've got a million good ideas here and, uh, like all <laughs> I feel of... like you're going to sound like my wife here in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I got one of those too. Uh, <laughs> this whole time you've been doing this, has this been, as accountant Mike, would he come and give the thumbs up? You've been profitable this whole time. You're raking in the dough. This is all working. How has this happened over the last few years? How are you making this dream work? Sure. So, so there's there's a couple of factors. I, I think I would get a thumbs up from accountant Mike. <laughs> let me let me lay it out the facts, and you you tell me. You can channel them. Um, first off, uh, when it comes down to it, uh, I am not relying on farming right now to support my wife and me. So, so we both work off farm jobs as our primary source of income as our primary source of retirement savings, as our primary source of healthcare, like all of those things are funded by off-farm jobs. And so that in and of itself, while it takes a lot of time away from being able to work on the farm, it also takes a lot of pressure away from making the farm successful immediately. I, I feel like I see a lot of people go into farming where it's like their paycheck is on the line with the farm that they're raising in years one, two, and three, when what they should be focusing on is learning. And, and so I, I took that part out of the equation for us. Number two, um, when it comes down to it, and I look at my operation, like I said, year one, I was just break even. I think I netted $23. Hey, that's um, pretty good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's not great. It's not paying any bills, but <laughs> look, you could maybe get a pizza. <laughs> that's a good pizza. You earned it. Um, and year, year two, um, so 2019, as I just actually finished doing all my stuff for my taxes, um, we ended up netting about $560 from the farm operations. But then on top of that, we actually made a fair amount of money from YouTube itself. And, and so um, I'm net profitable from the farming operation, but the YouTube income is actually giving me dollars to reinvest into the infrastructure and building into future years. And so, you know, I feel like kind of both doing both of those pieces together really creates a good sustainable business model. But again, it's not livable income just yet for us. What I'm going to be trying to do in year three is, is ramp that up and scale that up and have sort of a more robust and more scalable enterprise that I could ultimately make as a full-time income, which I'd be hoping to do by, say, years four or five. Um, but again, not having to make this my primary right out of the gate takes a lot of pressure and gives me the ability to experiment and refine my business model before I sink a ton of money into it or you know, really put like our house on the line yeah. to make it all successful. That's a great bit of advice. I, that's something we preach a lot over here is just like, don't go all in. Don't cause, cause farming is a specialized work. It, it's back to basics. It's the way our grandfathers, live. our grandfathers broke their back out there, you know, slaving away on the fields. I interviewed my grandfather before he passed away. He grew up on a dairy farm. He hated it. And he joined the military because it was easier than growing up on the farm. Um, so it is, while it's back to basics and it's simple living, it's hard and it's really hard to make it actually profitable and make it work. I'm impressed you were profitable your first year, Morgan. Count Mike would definitely be proud because he knows I wasn't profitable my first year. <laughs> um, and I like the way you talk about using things like YouTube. That's, that's a modern thing that Lord knows if, 
if Pa Ingalls, Little House on the Prairie, could have had a blog and made a few bucks from it, he would have done it to help support the homestead dream. So being being smart about that. What career-wise have you guys done for someone watching who's like, hey, I work a construction job. I, I you know, off I have to leave every day, for, you know, all hours of the day. Is that similar to what you're doing, Morgan? Are you telecommuting? How have you made the career work with growing a farm? Yeah, it, it, it's hard. I mean, to be really honest, it, it's, um, you know, I got uh, two jobs where I'm working 45-ish hours a week on, you know, kind of part of that on my day job and and working off farm at, you know, just a regular old corporate gig. Um, nothing special, nothing fancy, but it pays the bills and gives us health insurance and that sort of thing. Um, but then the other side of it is all my nights and weekends and, and kind of my free time, it, it goes to working on the farm. And, and so it's tough. I, I actually just took this past month of February off from making YouTube videos to give me just one, a little time for a little bit of a break and recharge the batteries and two, you know, work on some creative projects. And so it's not easy at all. And uh, trying to balance all of those things is is the uh, trade-off and sacrifice you have to make. To- that is like great advice, honest, like you're going to have, don't quit your day job, right? You're going to have to do something to make it work and there are ways to make it work better. I think you guys have been really smart in taking as much time as you did to grow. The fact that you just stuck with one livestock and then you added on one very similar livestock helps. Once you throw the pigs in there, it's going to be a whole new thing. But you are planning on growing the profits. And eventually, do you actually plan on eventually one of you or both of you cutting ties with corporate life completely and doing the whole farm thing full time? Yeah, no, I, I really do. I'm hoping nah, in, a, in a couple of years. And I don't want to kind of call my shot just yet, but um, that, that is my longer term dream is to just be able to do this on the day in and day out and be working at a scale where that could sustain us. Morgan, I pride myself being pretty clever with my homesteading puns and my homesteading references. And I love my abducted t-shirts. But man, when I saw your thing, I was like, dang it, he's got me. Uh, what do people got to go to your channel to check out? Oh, so so every morning when I let the ducks out, I, I always give a hearty yell of, release the quacken. So and, good, and, so good. <laughs> yeah, I got to just admit though, I don't think I came up with it. I think I heard somebody else say it years ago. I just was consistent with it. There you go. Hey, um, tell people about where do they find Release the Quacken? What do they look for? Where do they search? Where do they follow you guys? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, if you want to learn more about what we're doing at Goldshop Farm, uh, check out our YouTube channel. It's definitely the best place to do it. I put out uh, usually two videos a week every Monday and Thursday, which just tell a different story about what we're going through to start the farm. Um, so if you, as you've heard in this interview, kind of all the machinations of the business and what we've been thinking about, as well as the experiments with the animals and sort of the stories that happen by just living up here in Vermont, that's what we try to capture in, in the YouTube channel videos. And then the other thing I do is a podcast where I really try to just sit down and talk to different people, whether they're working with homesteading or farming or just kind of chasing their dreams in some sort of related field. 
and, and try to get their story. And, and so it's just like a conversational podcast uh, called the Gold Shop Farm Podcast that you can find um, pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, all those places. Awesome. So check out everything Morgan's doing. You can follow him on YouTube, follow him in iTunes. Okay, so all the, all the things. Check out all the things. Morgan, this has been an awesome interview. Uh, so many good points, um, you know, marketing points and how to grow slowly. Uh, you guys, you've done a very smart, reasonable exit strategy from corporate America. It would be a much more uh, viral video if we said, this is how to quit your job and farm full time in a year. But that's not going to work for most people. Most people are going to just crash and burn doing that. And I think what you guys are doing is is obviously it's working. I think Accountant Mike Wood will give you a thumbs up for sure. And um, and I think uh, I want to have the Morgan Report 2021. How did uh, how did cured cured goose and goose prosciutto and uh, goose bologna tell us all about it? We'll have you back on the show next winter to talk how and see how the year went. I'd love to do that. Yeah, that'd be fun. Next week's show is, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, I believe next week we are talking about living alone in a tiny home. I think that's the interview we have going on next week. We also have an upcoming interview for any of you business-minded, marketing-minded farmers, uh, an interview all about how to get some publicity, getting in the news, getting in the press, your story, Morgan talked about how important it is to grow your story. So that'll be a good interview coming up in the month of March. We're going to be having a a couple good discussions about what's going on here at the homestead. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. It was one of my favorite interviews in a long time, just about homesteading and business. If you're wishing that it was twice as long, guess what it is? The Homesteady Pioneers have the extended version of this podcast where Morgan went in to talk in detail about how to install hundreds of trees for a fraction of the cost on your property. 600 trees, that sounds very cost prohibitive. Yeah, it wasn't. I I think our overall budget ultimately worked out to be about $1,500 to put all those in. Wow. He explained how to sell duck eggs to people who've been buying chicken eggs their whole life. When it comes to duck eggs specifically, it's recognizing a couple of things. Number one, and this is the biggest probably, you know, duck eggs are, you know, the baker's best friend. And he talked about why he's trying now to convert his customers to buying geese instead of turkey. And so it's just, it's selling it almost like the same market that somebody would be selling like a turkey for because they're roughly about the same size of a bird. Uh, I was selling the geese for me. All right. I got it. I got to hear your pitch, man. What's your goose pitch? How do you convert somebody from a turkey purchase to a goose? Ah, so he had me totally convinced. I'm like totally regretting. I just ordered five turkeys this year and I'm like, dang it. Now I should have got goose. If you want to hear the extended version of this podcast and all our podcast episodes, become a homesteady pioneer. There's a link in the description of this podcast. Head over to thisishomesteady.com, click on shop, and then pioneers membership. You can become a pioneer for as little as $5 a month. You can join us live for these interviews, access the library of all our extended versions, and get discounts on products like John Siskovich's Chicken Tractor plans, which we talked about in this episode. Click here to become a Homesteady Pioneer.